in today's conspiracies, fears, and mysteries, two very strange murders, two very strange cases, the Ketty murders and the vanishing of Elisa Lamb. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. And what's going on, you? Welcome back to Conspiracy Fears and Mysteries Podcast. And today is Friday 3. I was going to say Friday the 13th. Friday 3. May. Friday 3 May. What the heck? May 3rd. Friday, May 3rd. Or May 3rd, 3 May. Whatever. Friday and it's 3rd May. You know what I'm saying? And we've got two cases today. Two very strange cases. One that I'm very, well, I'm familiar with because I've seen a lot of videos on it. That's that's about the extent of what I've seen on it is videos on YouTube. And the other one. I've never heard of before. And strange because I'm always looking at murder mysteries and, you know, strange things like this. So, you know, it came as a surprise to me when I saw this one and I didn't see it. And um, and today we're going to talk about the Ketty murders, which is a quadruple homicide that kept in 28. And Elisa Lam, was, that's the story that I've heard over and over that I've seen videos on over and over, which was really creepy, really strange when you listen to it. And if you watch the surveillance footage of her last moments, they were really, really nerve-wracking. To me, they were at least. It gives me goosebumps just even saying her name. But anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and let's begin with the Ketty murder. On the morning of April 12, 1981, Shayla Sharp returned to her home at Cabin 28 in the Ketty Resorts in California from the next-door neighbor's house. What the 14-year-old girl discovered inside the modest four-room cabin instantly became one of the most macabre scenes remembered in modern American crime history and has come to be known as the gruesome Ketty Murders. Inside cabin 28 were the bodies of her mother, Glenna, Sue Sharp, her teenage brother, John, and his high school friend, Dana Wingate. The three had been bound by medical and electrical tape and had either been viciously stabbed, strangled, or bludgeoned. Sheila's sister, 12-year-old Tina Sharp, was nowhere to be found. Ooh, that's... that's <laughs> I mean, the fact that of the way they were murdered is already bad, but stranger still, in an adjoining bedroom, the two youngest sharp boys, Ricky and Greg, as well as their friend and neighbor, 12-year-old Justice Smart, were found unharmed. They had apparently slept through the entire massacre, which had unfolded mere feet from their beds. Wow. So you do, like I don't know how these people sleep through these through these things. Like I I hear any sound. Like I just heard a sound right now outside my door, and I was already like, "Whoa, what the heck was that?" And and I record this podcast by myself, normally in the dark, but today's the afternoon, and thank God. 
The Sharp family had just moved into Kevin 28 the year before. Sue had just divorced her husband and brought her children from Connecticut to Ketty in Northern California. The six of them, 36-year-old Sue and her 15-year-old son, 14-year-old daughter Sheila and 12-year-old daughter Tina and 10-year-old Rick and 5-year-old Greg were friendly with their nearby neighbors at the Ketty Resort. The night before the murders, Sheila had slept over a friend's house down the street. John and his 17-year-old friend, Dana, had hitchhiked to a nearby town, Quincy, for a party and returned sometime later that evening. Tina had briefly joined her sister at the neighbor's before returning home to her mother. Two younger brothers and one of the neighbor's boys, Justin Smart. When Sheila returned home early the next morning to find her mother, brother, and his friends bloodied in the living room floor, she bolted back to, the, to her neighbor's house. Her friend's dad retrieved the three unharmed boys from their, uh, through their bedroom window so they would not have to see the scene. The murders have been notably violent. Investigators have been called about an hour after Sheila had discovered her slain family. Deputy Hank Clement was the first to arrive on the scene and he reported blood everywhere. On the walls, the bottom of the victim's shoes, Sue's bare feet, the bedding in, the t in Tina's bedroom, the furniture, the ceiling, the doors, and on the back steps. The prevalence of blood suggested to investigators that the victims had been moved and rearranged from the positions in which they were murdered. Wow. There's a picture said the Ketty family about four hours before the murders. That's, that's, that's insane. That's insane. And I keep hearing these damn, <laughs> these damn sounds over here, and I did not bring my gun with me. I normally, guys, before I continue, I normally do these podcasts. I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. I got my gun next to me. Whenever I do something with murder and I'm by myself, I'm not playing that shit. I'm going out like Tony Montana. <laughs> I watch too many movies, man. I watch too many. I watch too much stuff, and I like every single door. 15-year-old John was closest to the front door, face up, his hands blood-covered and bound with medical tapes. His throat had been slit. His friend Dana was on the floor beside him on his stomach. His head was badly damaged as though bashed with a blunt object and lay partially on a pillow. He had been manually strangled. His ankles were tied in electrical wire with electrical wire, which was wound or wound around, also around John's ankles so that the two were connected. Sheila's mother had been covered partially with a blanket, though that had done little to hide her gruesome injuries. On her side, the mother of five was naked from the waist down, tightly gagged with a bandana and her own underwear secured with medical tape. She had injuries consistent with a struggle and had an imprint of, of the butt of an eight, of a, of an eight 880 pellet gun on the side of her head. Like her son, her throat had been cut. All victims had suffered blunt force trauma by hammer or hammers. They they also all sustained multiple stab wounds. A bent steak knife was on the floor, a butcher knife and claw hammer. Both also bloodied were side by side on a small wooden table near the, near the entry in the kitchen. It would take the police hours to realize that a fourth victim, Tina, was missing. A fourth, it would take them hours to realize that a fourth victim was missing. Okay. I get it. A botched investigation. Now, this is now we're going towards the investigation to see how they, the FBI, or handle it. You know it's bad when the FBI takes control of the investigation. You know it's really bad. 
When it was eventually discovered that Tina Sharp was missing, the FBI arrived on the scene. The sheriff at the time of the murders, Doug Thomas, and his deputy, Lieutenant Don Stoy, were not initially able to discern an apparent motive, which made the murders at Ketty Cabin 28 seemingly random. The strangest thing is that there is no apparent motive. Any case without an apparent motive is the toughest to solve. Story recalled to the Sacramento Bee in 1987. The Sacramento Bee is another case, and I will look into that for another episode. Further, the home did not indicate forced entry, though detectives did recover an unidentified fingerprint from a handrail on the back stairs. The cabin's telephone had been left off the hook and all the lights had been shut off as well as the drapes closed. More co-founding is that the three youngest boys were not only untouched, but allegedly unaware of the event. Even though a woman and her boyfriend in the cabin next door woke around 1.30 a.m. to what they described were muffled screams. Unable to discern from where they were coming from, they went back to bed. They were like, well, we don't know what direction it is, so I'm just going back to sleep. Wow, okay. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there, thank goodness. I wasn't next door, thank goodness, because I don't know. However, though, the three boys initially claimed to have slept through the, through the massacre. Ricky and Greg's friend, Justin Smart, did later say that they saw Sue with two men in the house that night. One reportedly had a mustache and long hair, and the other clean-shaven with short hair, but both in glasses. One of the men had a hammer. Hmm. Okay, this is the part where I get suspicious. But anyway, let me keep reading because it's not too suspicious. It's just how do you sleep through a massacre like that? You know what I mean? If the neighbors heard muffled screams, how didn't the boys in the other room hear anything? Justin reported that John and Dana entered the home and argued with the men, which resulted in a violent fight. Tina was then allegedly taken out the cabin's back door by one of the men. So, listen, they slept through the whole thing, but he's reporting this. But anyway, allegedly a lot of potential evidence was collected on the scene, but because this was pre-DNA testing, very little helpful information was found at the time. Yeah, 81, there wasn't no forensic files. Sheriff Thomas called the Sacramento Department of Justice, which then sent in two special agents from their organized crime unit, not homicide which struck many as odd. Organized crime unit, meaning gangs and, you know, mafia and stuff like that. Not the homicide unit who specialize in this. Immediately, the two lead suspects, the two lead suspects were Justin Smart's father and the Sharp's neighbor, Martin, and his youngest house guest, ex-convict John Bo, Bo to be, who were known to have connections to organized crime in the area. Both men had been seen in suits and ties behaving oddly in the bar the night before. Martin Smart later told the police that he had a hammer which matched the one discovered and also that his hammer and uh, and gone had gone missing shortly before the murders. Later that year, a knife was recovered in a trash can outside the Caddy General store. Authorities also believed this item to be linked to the crime. It would be another three years after the Kennedy murders that, the, that Tina was found. Three years? Wow. A man discovered a human skull in the adjoining but Boots County, about 30 miles from Ketty, in Plumas County. Near the remains, detectives also found a child's basket, a blue nylon jacket, a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. With that, the remains of Tina Sharp had been found, which made the crimes committed on April 11 or 12, 1981, a quadruple homicide, because they only found three bodies and one was missing. The Boots County Sheriff Department was perplexed by the identity until an anonymous call asked, I was wondering if they 
thought of the murder of the, if they thought of the murder up in Keddy, up in Plumas County a couple of years ago where the twelve year old girl was never found. I was okay. I don't know how I don't know why I read this that way, but that's exactly what it says. I was wondering if they thought of the murder up in I wonder I wonder if they thought of the murder up in Keddy up of Keddy up in Pumas County a couple of years ago where a twelve year old girl was never found. What the hell? Meanwhile, Sheriff Thomas had resigned from the investigation three months in and took a job instead of the Sacramento Department of Justice. His handling of the case, in retrospect, would be considered disastrous at best and corrupt at worst. I was told the suspects were told to get out of town, so to me, that means it was covered up, Sheila Sharp told CBS Sacramento in 2016. Wow. The Sharps' home was demolished in 2004. That is good. Holy crap. Okay. So they have evidence that was ignored here uh, in the Keddie murders. And, and I mean, it looks like not it wasn't investigated enough. You know what I'm saying? Obviously, because the, the sheriff three months into the case went and took another job. Real real dedicated cops don't do that. You know, they, they investigate. They, like... These detectives get wrapped up in their in their cases. They get really wrapped up. It becomes personal for them. Remarkably, the tape of the anonymous tip regarding Tina was found sealed in case files, untouched by Plumas County Sheriff's Department until 2013, when the case was reopened with new investigators Plumas Sheriff Greg Hagwood and Special Investigator Mike Gamberg. In 2016, Gamberg located a hammer believed to be one of the murder weapons in a dried-up pond in Keddie. Jesus. Further, it came to light that Marilyn Smart, uh, Marty's wife and mother of Justin, had left her husband on the day of the murder discovery. Afterwards, she provided Plumas County Sheriff's Department with a handwritten letter sent to her and signed by her estranged husband. It read, I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with I I bought it with four people's lives. You tell me, you tell me we are, you tell me, you tell me we are though. Great. What else do you want? The letter was not treated as a, as a confession, nor was it followed up on the time. Even though Marilyn admitted in a 2008 documentary that she thought her husband, his friend Bo was responsible, and his friend Bo was responsible, Sheriff Doug Thomas contradicted this and stated that Martin had successfully passed a polygraph test. It was later confirmed that Martin was close with the sheriff. I knew it. I knew I was gonna say that. In these counties, in these in these cases, right? Uh, I'm sorry. In these counties, when you when you look at these small counties where it's a sheriff and a deputy, a sheriff and three deputies, you know, those where it's just got like four cops for the whole town. Normally, the cop knows everybody. He's gonna make friends. These are the guys that he goes to the bar with, that he plays golf with, that he you know goes fishing with. And all that stuff. These are, these are good friends. And that's the problem with these small towns. That's the only problem. S small towns are great. People know each other. They love each other. Everybody helps each other. But at the same time, when things like this happen, they also cover for each other. Now, I had a feeling that the husband was friends with the, uh, with the sheriff from the beginning. I don't know why. Also, nobody had broken into the house. There was no signs of breaking in. That means they knew whoever was in there. Or or they let them in. They just let them in. Hey, come in. 
There was no forced entry or anything. In 2016, Gabbard met with the council at the Reno's Veterans Administration. The anonymous council told him that in May 1981, Martin Smart had confessed to killing Sue and Tina Sharp. I killed the women and her daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. He, he reportedly told the counselor. When the DOJ was alerted to this confession in 1981, they, they dismissed it as hearsay. Wow. So... I'm looking at a picture here. Uh, there's a confession tape and a picture of a hammer and the knife. And it's a big knife that was used. The most widely accepted theory solved. I mean, I'm sorry. The most widely accepted theory involved a love triangle between Martin, Marilyn, and Sue. It was believed that Martin and Sue were having an affair and that Sue was supposedly counseling Marilyn to leave her husband who she had said was abusive to her. When Martin discovered this, he enlisted Bo, his friend and known mob enforcer, who had lived with the smarts a mere 10 days before the Kelly murders, to take Sue out of the picture. Sue was his wife. This would account for Marilyn leaving her husband the day of the murder discovery. It would also explain why the smart boy and the other sharp boys in the adjoining room were spared. Additionally, it gives context to Martin's handwritten note that Marilyn gave to the Plumas Sheriff's Department. Some investigators who picked up the case when it reopened in 2013 tied the, the slangs into an even larger plot. The Gamberg, it is clear that the DOJ and Thomas Front Sheriff's Department covered it up. Is is the way it sounds it is the way it sounds. He alleges that Bowen Martin fit into a larger drug smuggling scheme which involved the federal government. Martin was a known drug dealer and Bo was connected to Chicago crime syndicates with financial interest in drug dis uh, drug distribution. Woo! And they got the gang unit in this. Did you see how the sheriff in the beginning immediately got the gang unit instead of homicide? Homicide would have started connecting dots because they know what to look for. The gang unit that the sheriff knew, he could have told him, look, there's gang stuff here. There, there's there's some connection here with organized crime. Let's go ahead and cover up anything organized. But you guys take the investigation as a as a uh, homicide. Hmm. Furthermore, it suggests an answer as to why this case was handled so sloppily. It remains unsolved and is seemingly not a priority to the Sacramento Department of Justice. What is known is that 37-year-old crime, that the 37-year-old crime is far from a cold case. As new evidence sheds light on what may have occurred in Cabin 28 in Keddy, California. Although both Martin Smart and Bo Bodeby are now deceased, new DNA evidence has pointed investigators to other suspects who may have had a hand in these murders and who are still alive. It is my belief that there were more than two people who were involved in, in the totality of the crime, the disposal of the evidence and the abduction of the little girl. Hagwood said, we are convinced that there are a handful of people that fit the roles who are still alive. Yeah, I believe the same thing. I believe there's, this is definitely when they said cover up, I said, well, let me see how it's covered up. Because I was thinking at first, I was like, well, did the boys do something? But the boys, nah, the, the boys would have had evidence on them. The boys would have had evidence on them. And, and that's something that the, the sheriff would have immediately, because he had nothing to do with this, just boys. He, you know, he would have solved the crime and said, oh, look, I solved the crime. He had nothing to win from that or to lose from that. Now, with now, if if it was a you know uh, organized crime related homicide, then yes, you know there's ties to organized crime. The guy didn't 
The guy wanted the other chick. A lot of things going on. You know what I mean? A lot of things going on. So, obviously, this thing, you know, this is this obviously, this is <laughs> obviously a cover-up. Obviously, this is a big cover-up. And, you know, so, I don't know. What do you guys think of that case of that murder? This is the first, that's the first time I ever heard the case. Apparently, there is a, uh, there is a documentary about it. I did not know about it. I don't know. But anyway, let's go ahead with the next one. The unsolved mystery behind the disturbing death of Elisa Lamb. Elisa Lamb was found dead in a water tank at the notorious Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles in 2013. To this day, nobody knows how she died or how her body got there. This case, um, I've seen videos of it. I've seen many videos of it. Oh, she had a Facebook? Hold on. Yes, yeah, 2013. She definitely had a she had a Facebook. A uh, pr uh, pretty young girl. I've seen this case. I've seen this case. I've seen the surveillance footage of this case, and it is very, very. It's it's creepy. It just gives me chills right now. I got chills right now, and I'm about to go buy some Italian food. But it, it gives me chills. You know, um, it, it's very it's disturbing. Like if you see the way she was acting on the video, and if you haven't seen it, go on YouTube. And check it out. Go check out the video on YouTube. And you can see the way she was acting. The way that she... Just the way she was... I don't know. It was just like really crazy. You know, and then her body ended up in a place where you would have to... Like, there's almost no way where her body ended up. There's almost no way of getting up there and putting it in there without somebody seeing you. It just, it was in one of those water tanks that are on top of the buildings that are just full of water for like for the whole building. And those tanks are covered and they have a small opening where you could open up and yeah, you could fit a body, but you have to kind of like really get it in there. You know what I mean? For it to be, there, for you to put it in there. And then you have to climb these steps, these sta uh, like n not a staircase, but steps, like a ladder that's attached, a metal ladder that's attached to that thing. And it is very, very hard uh, to get up there with a body on you. Like if you, if you're, if you like to, for you to get there by yourself, it's easy. For you to get there with a with a body on your shoulder. It's not, it's not you because you're, you're going straight up. You got to understand you're going straight up. And regardless if she was a light lady, you know, 110 pounds or 109, whatever, 100, whatever. It's still a hundred something pounds on your shoulder that you're going straight up with. This has to be, if it was somebody that, I don't know what happened, did something to her, they have to be very physically fit. Now, when you watch the video, um, you know, and I'm not going to read the article in her because you could go watch the video and you could deduct a lot of things from yourself. But I'm going to explain it, explain what I think about her case. Well, I, I'll read in case you don't know. I'll read some of the article. On January 26, 2013, Elisa Lamb arrived in L.A. 
She had just come by Amtrak train from San Diego and was headed to Santa Cruz as part of her solo trip around the West Coast. The trip was supposed to be a getaway from her studies at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, where she was originally from. She was from Canada. Her family had been weary of her traveling by herself, but the young student was determined to go at it alone. As a compromise, Lam made sure to check in with her parents every day of the trip to let them know she was safe. That's why it struck her parents as unusual when they didn't hear from her daughter on January 31st. The daughter from their daughter on January 31st. The day she was scheduled to check out of her L.A. hotel, the Cecil. The Lambs eventually contacted the Los Angeles Police Department. The police searched the premises of the Cecil but couldn't find her. So, <clears throat> in case you didn't know, the Cecil. Um, I got the surveillance footage right here. Um, in case you didn't know, the Cecil. Uh, the Cecil, the, the hotel, Hotel Cecil is a hotel where I think you had uh, Richard Ramirez, I believe it was. I think it was Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, the serial killer. The Night Stalker. I believe it was Richard Ramirez, if I'm not mistaken, where he lived for a while. He stayed at, at the Cecil, and, and his copycat, too, stayed there. There was a copycat killer, and he stayed there uh, for a while, too. And it's believed that's where a lot of their crimes uh, derived from, you know. So it strikes, it strikes, it, you know, it strikes me as odd. A lot of people say she was murdered. A lot of, you know, a lot of people say she was, you know, it, it was foul play or whatever. It may have been foul play to the, to the point where, and this. Mm, kind of nice foul play the way i see it if you go watch that footage you'll see her talking to somebody but there's nobody there you see her like looking like if somebody's following her but there's nobody there she gets into the elevator she's acting really strange and then she goes i guess to the top floor i think she went to the top floor in the footage because it, the i only saw the part where she was in the, she was going back in and out of the hallway, like talking to somebody. To me, <clears throat> I think maybe somebody may have drugged her. Somebody may have drugged her, or um, she just voluntarily took drugs. I don't. That didn't look like anything alcoholic. It didn't look alcohol related. Like she didn't look. It's like she was stumbling. Like she was drunk. It looked like drugs. Drugs have a different. You have a different effect on drugs. Now, the most logical way is for her to, the most logical explanation is that she was on drugs and that she went up those stair, that staircase or that not staircase, but that ladder herself because by yourself, you can go up there and being her size, she could fit herself up there. And I believe she was in there with no clothes. So if she was drugged, you know, a lot of drugs make you feel uh, whatever. For some reason, people take their clothes off when they're on drugs a lot of times. So that could be a possibility that she did take her clothes off, climb that ladder. You know, um, she took her clothes off at some point because I don't I don't think her clothes were found anywhere. Um, You know. So. She could have took her clothes off somewhere. Now, looking at the picture 
Uh, looking at the picture. Let me see. I'm looking at the picture of the water towers. And on the water towers, it's four water towers. Right? And you see the firefighters up there. And the opening of that water tower thing. Now, this is where it gets crazy. Because I believe, I believe that they had to unlock it from the outside. That There's a lock on it. I believe that's how, I believe that's what I read somewhere that when I saw that on a video, they had to unlock it. But here's the thing. Now, to be logical about this, to be completely logical, okay? Uh, let's take away all the, all the theories of what happened, and let's just put logic into this. So you have a maintenance man, because the, the way that they found her body was a maintenance man who went up to check on, the, on those water towers found it because people were complaining about the taste of the water and the smell of the water, I believe it was, because it had a weird taste. You know, there's a decomposing body in there. Um, uh, you know, there's a, it's going to leave a bad taste in the water. Now, let me see. Let me see what this says here. It says, according to a statement by the chief of the Los Angeles Fire Department, the tank in which Lane's body was found had to be drained completely and then cut open from the side to remove her five foot four frame. Nobody know how Lamb's corpse floating lifelessly next to the same clothes, next to the clothes she wore in the surveillance video, ended up in the hotel's water tank, or who else might have been involved. Hotel staff told authorities that Lamb was always seen by herself around the hotel premises. Wow. <clears throat> wow. <laughs> it says here, one person saw her right before her death at a nearby shop. Eerily named the last bookstore. Wow. Wow. Okay. The, to the toxicology report confirmed that Lamb had consumed a number of medical drugs, likely to be medication for her bipolar disorder, but there were no indications of alcohol or illegal substances in her body. Well, you know, like I said, drugs drugs it doesn't matter if it's prescribed drugs or it was not you know granted if it's you know if it's prescribed drugs then you know then it's, it's supposed to balance you out because the doctor's supposed to know what to give you how many milligrams yada yada but it could have had a negative effect maybe she ate something that had a negative uh, negative negative chemical reaction you know Look, I'm a big conspiracy theorist. I love it. I love conspiracies, but at the same time, I'm also, you know, I like to deduct, you know, when when I can see, when I can put fact, when I can put a logical explanation to something. Nine times out of ten, the logical explanation is exactly what happened. I would say eight times out of ten. So in this case, back to the water tanks. What I think happened was she was in there for a while because they didn't find her till a while after. Let me look. I think it was two weeks. Two weeks, three weeks after was that they found it because the water obviously started tasting bad. So what I think it was, okay, they didn't find it because at some point, in, within the two weeks, those tanks get checked. So the maintenance guy goes up, opens the tank, but her body's not floating on the side where he opened. He, he probably just opened it to look in it and then closed it again. You know what I mean? 
because at the time nobody had reported any bad taste shit. So he probably just did his regular checks, regular maintenance, check the pipes, everything's fine. He opens it, doesn't see anything, no clothes. He just opens it, kind of looks at the water, and then closes it. That's how maintenance guys do. You know, when it's a routine. He just went through his routine. Now, after the, you know, he so he locked it again. Boom. Then he climbs downstairs to get to the top of that tank and leaves. Now, a few days later, in between maintenance calls, people are reporting that the water tastes bad. So the water tasting bad now. So now he has to go and check why the water is tasting bad. But this time the water, the body's been decomposing. The the you know the 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 composition, not the comp, not the total composition of the body, but you know the weight of the body is going to change. She's losing weight. It's, it's floating differently. So now it's going to come up to the surface more. It's you know it's um it's gonna it's gonna be you know moving around as water drains because people are using it. As more water comes in, it's gonna drain. It's it's gonna move. It's gonna change positions. So now he catches a glimpse of it, freaks out. He's like, oh, my God, there's something in here, you know. And then he calls uh, the police and et cetera, and then this is where the case starts. So that I think there was a chemical, maybe a chemical imbalance in her drugs, maybe. Because somebody saw her before. So she had plans to go home. She was supposed to go home probably that day or the day after, something like that. So she's buying gifts for her family. She intended on going home. I mean, she's like, okay, let me take my pills. Boom. Um, something didn't agree with her. The pills gave her, you know, she had bipolar disease. So maybe, I don't know, something happened. Maybe the bipolar, I don't know exactly. I'm not too uh, privy on the the whole bipolar thing, but. Something happened, obviously, where, you know, she, it, it just became, just became something, uh, you know, just a chemical imbalance, you know, and I mean, we got to look at it logically. We can't always, hold on, we can't always look at it, you know, uh, like it's a mystery. There's some things that just happen, and uh, they happen, but they have logical explanations for them, you know what I mean? So, we can't put a mystery on everything, you know, like, oh, mysterious, sometimes it's telling you it's just a logical explanation, you know what I mean? Um, so, I don't know, I think, I think that's what happened to her, you know, and I, I'm not taking anything away from it, I'm not saying, no, oh, it's just that, no, it's still bad, you know, the young lady lost her life, family's mourning, you know, they lost a loved one. But I think that's exactly what happened. I, I don't think and that it was foul play on this. Unless somebody gave her some kind of drug or maybe she took too many you know, whatever. I think it was I think it was that she took too maybe maybe took too many, maybe I don't know. I don't know what medication is that people give for uh, bipolar disease. You know what I mean? I don't know what the medications are, so I couldn't really tell you. Um, I mean, it could be anything. It could be anything, man. 
but this case, um, I had actually, let me see, when did I see this case? Uh, the fir- the first time the first time I saw this case was was on YouTube and it was it was really it was really crazy it was really creepy. I mean it was like when 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 you watch the video especially when they add you know when they add the music in the back the scary music you know you know when they add something like you know what I mean it just adds to the eeriness you know that's why that's why I do it on the podcast whenever there's something that I really want to catch you with on this podcast but when you watch it you're gonna see that you're gonna say to yourself this girl was on something she was on something because she was freaking out she was talking to people that weren't there she came out of the of the she came out of the elevator and was talking like if somebody was and she was yelling. You could tell she was kind of yelling or something. She was, and she was scared. You know, she was paranoid. And it just looked really creepy. But if you put logic behind it, then you see it's like okay, she was. You know, she suffered from was it uh, bipolar disease? So she had medication that possibly could have altered her reality or her way of thinking. And she walked and she put herself there she drowned she went into that there's people that have that have drowned being on drugs or over medicated or whatever and their mind is not right so they're not you know their reaction time their fight or flight is no longer existent or is very is very uh is very uh what do you call it uh like dimmed it's dimmed it's it's you know numb it's very numb so she could have drowned. She could have just drowned. You know, she she went up there. She climbed those steps and she put herself in there. Now, why was the tank unlocked when they found it locked is different. Now, that's what I heard one story that they found it locked. So if those tanks are always unlocked, which they, they probably could because it's to get up there is, is hard. It's like very, uh, you know... It's like, why would you want to go up there? There's nothing like, you know what I mean? And if you look at the picture, the way the tanks are, there's four tanks that are next to each other. It's very, if you were to climb up there with a body, it is hard. And somebody is going to see you. There's, you can't, there's no way to do that incognito. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. It's just, it's, it looks, it's very hard to do that. But anyway. That's all I got for y'all today, man. If you got any cases, aliens, flatter, I don't care. Murder. Anything mysterious. That y'all want me to talk about. Hadouken! Yo. I don't know why I did that Hadouken sound effect. I just wanted to. <laughs> y'all go ahead and send it to me, man. Send it to me right here. Um, You can send it on my Instagram you can put it on the gram. You could inbox me on the gram at uh, smoking underscore a underscore podcast. Or do you just put smoking a pod? Because that's the name. You could put. I think you could put smoking a pod and it'll come out. All one word, smoking a pod. Let me do it right now. See if it comes out. Yep, it does. Just put smoking a pod. 
Smoking a pod. Smoking a pod. And it'll come out. Now, both my podcasts are home in the same Instagram. So don't, you know, the picture is different than this podcast that you see here. Whether you're on Spotify or whatever, you probably got the same thumbnail. But, um, yes. Go ahead and inbox me there. Or on Twitter, you can inbox me on the tweet tweet. I tweet a lot about uh, Game of Thrones and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Uh, so, you know, just be mindful of that. I tweet a lot about that. On Twitter, it's smoking a podcast, at smoking a podcast, or one word, smoking a podcast, like the letter A podcast. And as always, I will see y'all on the next smoke. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. 